Well, that was like three weeks ago. I fresh off of Israel, but Patty and I left for uh, New Hampshire Saturday, this past Saturday, yesterday, and um, I looked at the, my cell phone. I noticed it was a text from Pastor, and he said, are you available uh, for Sunday? And I said, well, not for Sunday morning. I'll be preaching at uh, Tri-State Baptist Church in Chesterfield for their morning and the afternoon service, but I am available for that. Uh, for the Sunday night, and so we got that all set up, and so it is a blessing to preach at your home church when we have uh, that opportunity, but I'll tell you, we had a great time this morning at Tri-State Baptist Church, some of you might know Pastor Mark Boldanza, and I had a wonderful opportunity to preach there for their Sunday school, uh, the morning service, then they had the potluck, and then a special afternoon service, and so we just had a wonderful uh, time being with him, with him and all of his people. Uh, but it's great to be at your home church preaching God's word to uh, our fellow church members. And so we do appreciate that. And I know Pastor is watching, and we're praying for you, and we're hoping you feel better. And uh, hopefully we'll see you, Lord willing, this Wednesday uh, behind the pulpit uh, teaching God's word. Uh, I want you to take your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Zechariah, if you will, please. Zechariah. And uh, this will be the fourth message I'll be preaching today. Preached three messages uh, this morning in the afternoon, and then, of course, here tonight. Not that I'm complaining, because I love preaching God's Word. Amen? And uh, I want to talk about, as you can see on the screen, the two olive trees and the two candlesticks. So we're going to look at Zechariah, chapter number 4. We'll look at verses 2 through 6, and then we'll drop down to verse number 14. Zechariah, chapter 4. And we'll look at verses 2 through 6, and then we'll drop down to verse number 14. Zechariah chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading in verse number 2. And the Word of God tells us this. And said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof, and the two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Now, of course, the Bible always interprets the Bible, right? So the Bible is going to tell us exactly who these are here. Drop down to verse number 14. Then said he, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. I think you know who these two anointed ones are. Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. Let's have a word of prayer tonight. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord. Uh, the wonderful time of ministering God's word at Tri-State Baptist Church this morning. Being with Brother Mark Boldanza and all of his people. And what a blessing it was to preach the word of God to them, dear Father. And now, Lord, we are here tonight at our home church. And I'm grateful uh, once again to stand behind this sacred desk in place of our Pastor Tony, Lord, who is not feeling well. I'm praying right now, dear God, that your hand be upon him. They would just give him grace, give him healing to his body, strengthen him. And I pray that we would see him here, uh, Lord willing, Wednesday evening. Father, we want to feast on fresh manner tonight, Lord. And so I pray that as I preach this message, 
that you would keep me within the bounds of the word of God, that we would have a better understanding of the two anointed ones standing before the Lord of all the earth. And uh, Father, we pray that you bless those uh, watching via live stream on my page and uh, East Bay Baptist Church page, that the word of God would minister to them, Lord. And maybe, Lord, somebody watching, not saved, would come to faith in the Lord Jesus as their personal Savior. So, Father, may you now be glorified in everything that is said and done here today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen. You've heard me teach and preach this many, many, many times. It's always important that when we study God's Word, especially Bible prophecy, it's always important to use parallel passages. Amen? When we use parallel passages, it gives us a better understanding of, say, a person, an event, or a place in the Word of God. It helps us to ascertain more information. Amen? And I, I say this all the time. The Bible is its best own interpreter. And we just need to leave it like that. Amen? The Bible interprets the Bible. We need to leave out the thoughts. We need to leave out the opinions of the mind of the finite reader. And we need to exegete the text. That just simply means you draw the intended meaning from the text, as intended by the biblical author. So when you compare Scripture with Scripture using these parallel passages, we are applying inductive Bible study. It's a very, very rich approach to studying God's holy word. Amen. So we're looking at Zechariah chapter 4, uh, verses 2 through 4 and verse 14. Now in context, it talks about the vision of the golden candlestick. So what do we call this, cold, this golden candlestick? Well, now that takes you back to Exodus chapter 25, right? What do we call this? Do you remember what they call it in Hebrew? The menorah. It is the seven-branch candelabra, or the candlestick, if you will. It gave light to the tabernacle, right, or in Hebrew, the Mishkan, and it gave light to the first and second Jewish temples. The high priest would go into the uh, tabernacle, into the, the holy place uh, every day, and he would put fresh oil within those seven bowls. And uh, we're talking fresh, fresh oil that they would get from the Mount of Olives. They would crush those olives, get the oil out of it, and they would put that oil in that lampstand that would give light to the tabernacle and the first and second Jewish temples. So remember that it's the menorah or the seven-branched uh, candelabra. So that takes you back to Exodus chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. God commanded Moses and the children of Israel to make that seven-branched candelabra to give light to the tabernacle in the first and second Jewish temples. So when you look at that menorah, that should remind you of Revelation chapter number one. Why don't you go there with me? Let's go to Revelation chapter number one, the book of the apocalypse, the book of Revelation. This is where we apply inductive Bible study now. This is where we compare Scripture with Scripture. You'll notice with me in Revelation chapter number 1. Revelation chapter number 1, beginning with... I'm going to just start in verse number 12. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 12. 
Now notice John the Apostle is speaking here. Jesus is in the midst of these seven golden candlesticks, or these seven menorahs, if you will. John the Apostle said in verse number 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw what? Seven golden candlesticks. Now that takes you back to Zechariah chapter 4, does it not? The seven bowls, the seven branch candelabra, if you will. Verse 13 says, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Who is that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called the Son of Man 79 times in the New Testament. Do you know who else was called Son of Man in the Bible? Remember? Ezekiel, exactly. He was called Son of Man 92 times, just in that one book alone. And yet Jesus is called Son of Man, or as they say in Hebrew, Ben Adam. He is the Son of Man. And you'll notice that the Son of Man is clothed with a garment down to the foot, and he's good about the paps with the golden girdle. May I just say this? This is the only snapshot we have of Jesus Christ in the Bible. The only snapshot of him. The only description we have of him, of what he looked like, right here in Scripture, but this time in all of his glory. It says in verse 14, His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. I don't know if you've ever been to Niagara Falls on the Canadian side. I mean, you've been to Niagara Falls on the Canadian side. So you know what I'm talking about here, right? You go under those falls and those little caves or, or walkways that they have, and you're just standing next to those falls. You can't even hear yourself talk. You can't even hear yourself think. Those waters are coming down so intense, I mean so loud, you can't hear nothing. That reminds me of this right here. His voice was as the sound of many waters. Verse 16, and he had in his right hand seven stars. Now you're scratching your head, you're saying, who are these seven stars right here? Well, the Bible is going to interpret for us who the seven stars are. And out of his mouth, when he sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. First and the last? Well, wait a minute. God the Father said in Isaiah 44, verse number 1, Isaiah 44, verse number 6, that he is the first and the last. And yet Jesus here is saying, I am the first and the last. You know what that tells me? Jesus was not a created being. That is heresy. That is false doctrine. Jesus Christ is the creator of heaven and earth. God Almighty in the flesh. And he says in verse 18, I am he that liveth and, look at this, was. That's past tense. Was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. So John sees Yeshua. Everyone say Yeshua. Yeshua. Now you're speaking Hebrew. Yeshua is Hebrew for salvation, right? Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Yeshua, salvation. John sees Yeshua, Jesus, in the midst 
of these seven golden candlesticks, in the midst of these seven menorahs. The candlesticks represent the seven churches. Now, Brother Tom, how do I know that? How do I know these seven golden candlesticks represent the seven churches? Well, look at uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. And you will notice how the Bible interprets verse number 13. Look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Verse 20 just interpreted verse 16 concerning those seven stars, right? So now we know that the seven stars are the angels of these seven churches. Now we continue to read. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the... You see how the Bible interprets the Bible? doesn't need my help. It stands on its own, amen? That's what I mean by inductive Bible study. Folks, it's a very rich approach to studying the Word of God. So we must compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, getting back to Zechariah, uh, chapter number 4, we know that two Jewish prophets, one by the name of Haggai and the other by the name of Zechariah, were the Jewish prophets during the post-exilic period. In other words, at the end of 70 years in a Babylonian captivity, God would allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, right? to rebuild the second Jewish temple, the Beit HaMikdash. And those two Jewish prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, are encouraging the Jewish people, stop building your homes, stop planting your gardens, focus on the house of God. Build this house. Build this temple. And that's exactly what they were doing at the end of the 70-year uh, captivity in Babylon. Uh, Haggai prophesied at around 520 uh, B.C., lasting maybe about four months or so. Then Zechariah begins his ministry after Haggai between, say, 520, 508 B.C., and they are both preaching encouragement to build the temple of the Lord. Start the work of God in rebuilding the temple of the Lord. And who would carry out that rebuilding? The two olive trees and the two candlesticks in Zechariah chapter 4, which no doubt would be Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest. They would lead the work in rebuilding this temple. Haggai and Zechariah are encouraging Zerubbabel and Joshua are leading the way to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And this is exactly what we see going on here. When we read Zechariah 4.14, Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. God has called Zerubbabel, and he has called Joshua. One would be a political figure, one would be a spiritual figure. Zerubbabel, who is the governor, would lead the way in rebuilding the temple. And, of course, Joshua, the high priest, would be the one in preaching the word of God to them as they are building the temple of the Lord. They are the two anointed ones. And the text clearly favors identifying these two as Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor. And these two, these two anointed ones, 
would be the channel in whom the God of Israel will manifest His glory and His light to the post-exilic Jews coming back from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild that second temple. You want to know what they did? Once the temple was complete, instead of being grateful, yeah, exactly, brother, instead of being joyful, <laughs> I, can, I can just imagine Haggai and Zechariah, the Jewish prophets, and I can just imagine Zerubbabel and Joshua saying, what is the matter with you guys? We just built the house of God. Why are you crying? Well, it's nothing like Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was just so glorious. It was just so beautiful. This just looked, it looks like a hut. So what? If God is in there, it's the house of God. It doesn't have to be this big, elaborate building of a mega church with thousands and thousands of thousands. Amen. You can have a big, massive church with thousands and thousands of people. If the right doctrine is not being preached, God is not in it. But if you have a small church with a small congregation, they're preaching the word of God, and God is there, it's bigger than any mega church would ever be. So don't look at this house because it's not like Solomon's temple, because to you it looks like a hut. If God is in there, it's the house of God. And if God isn't in there, it's just a house. Amen? East Bay Baptist Church. This is our home church. We're all members of this church. We have a pastor of this church that stands behind this pulpit every single week. And he preaches the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of the living God. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Because in many of our churches today, ladies and gentlemen, there is so much heresy, there is so much apostasy out there. And the thing is, brother, it's not getting any better. we got all this heresy creeping even into our independent fundamental Baptist churches. That's why it's very important that we stick with the book, man. As like Dr. Jimmy DeYoung used to say, take a look at the book. Don't get your doctrine from Christian TV. Don't get your doctrine from Christian radio. Don't get your doctrine from Hollywood. I just preached that this morning at Tri-State Baptist Church. You get your doctrine from the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. I stand alone on the KJV, the B-I-B-L-E, the Bible. Amen. This is where we get our doctrine. That's why 2 Timothy 2.15 says to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And the reason why Christians today don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth is because we are not studying. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. I love that word inspiration. It comes from the Greek word theos neustos. God breathed. Every jot and tittle of this book is God breathed. And it is profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Crack open your King James Bible, get out your pen, and study, man. Because if you don't, the cults will have a field day with you. Just last night I was dealing with some anti-Semitic guy who claims to be a Christian. 
And he's trying to get me to watch. It's nothing but distractions, Tom. Nothing but distractions, Tom. He's trying to get me to watch YouTube videos condemning Messianic Judaism. And it went beyond Messianic Judaism. This guy was just a straight-up anti-Semite. I said, you know what I've learned for the 30 minutes of talking with you, sir? Well, what's that? You're anti-Semitic. There's no expiration date on Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 3. And I think you know exactly what Genesis 12, 3 says. Concerning the Jewish people, I will bless those who bless thee. And I will curse those who curse thee. And in thee, Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Because through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through the line of Davidic kings would come the Mashiach, the Messiah. This guy was upset with me. You know why? You ready for this one, Heather? He's upset with me because I use too much Hebrew. You have a problem with the holy tongue of Hebrew? I said, sir, you got a serious, serious problem. And I suggest you give that over to the Lord. Either get saved or repent of your sins or do something because you have a serious streak of anti-Semitism in you. I know that was a way of chasing a rabbit. But he said, and then he said it to me, these are the two anointed ones, Zerubbabel, Joshua, that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. They would lead the way in rebuilding this temple. They would be the channel in whom God would manifest his glory to the Jewish people coming back from Babylon to rebuild the temple. So you have Haggai and Zechariah. They are prophesying. And you got Zerubbabel and Joshua. They are leading the way in doing the work of the Lord. You've got to remember, too, that the vision of Zechariah, chapter number 4, also shows the future of Israel. And what's the future of Israel? They will be a blessing to the world. They will be a light to all nations as a result of the coming of the Messiah, who will unite the offices of prophet, priest, and I love using alliteration here, potentate. <laughs> prophet, priest, and potentate. By the way, that word potentate is a biblical word. Remember 1 Timothy 6.15, which in his times he shall show who is the true and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Who is the true and only potentate? He's not sitting in Rome. I'll tell you that right now. He's not in Britain, not in Thailand, or any nation that has a monarchy. One day he'll be the King of kings and the Lord of Lords, when he establishes his kingdom from the holy city of Jerusalem for 1,000 years. Israel will be a blessing to the nations of the world with the coming of the Messiah, who will unite the offices of prophet, priest, and potentate. Yes, I believe in a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus the Messiah. There is the holy city of Jerusalem right there. Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 7 doesn't tell me once, twice, three, four, five, but six times he will reign for 1,000 years. Brother, I take that to be literal. Even today in the church, well, we shouldn't be taking Revelation 20 literally. Why not? Well, we just shouldn't. Why? Because you say so? There is no 
justification at all to take Revelation chapter 20, 2 through 7 and say, and say it is figurative. It is spiritual. No, I'm looking at a literal city. Does that look like a spiritual city to you? I was just there in that city three weeks ago. The holy city of Jerusalem. That will be ground zero for the Messiah's kingdom to come. That's why Jesus prayed in Matthew 6.10, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. The establishment of the millennial kingdom reign of Jesus the Messiah. So we now apply inductive Bible study, right? We looked at Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 4 and verse 14. Now look at Revelation chapter 11. Tie this all together now, right? Look at this. Revelation chapter number 11. You compare Zechariah 4, 2 through 6 with Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. Check this out. Revelation 11, verses 3 and 4. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now we know in Zechariah chapter 4, the two anointed ones, the two olive trees and the two candlesticks were Zerubbabel and Joshua, the Kohen Haggadol, the high priest. But when we get to Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, John the Apostle says he sees two olive trees and two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now, some people would say, oh, then uh, that's got to be Zerubbabel and Joshua uh, raised from the dead and prophesying to the, uh, to the world during the tribulation period. I don't think that's the case. Here's the reason why I say that. I can dogmatically identify one of these witnesses right here. Dogmatically. Who is that witness? Elijah. Remember? Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 prophesies that Elijah will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So he's prophesying during the first half of the tribulation period before the last half of the great tribulation period or the great and dreadful day of the Lord coming. So I know Elijah is one of these two witnesses here. The other one is debatable. Some would say Moses. But based on my reading of Deuteronomy 34 and verse 5, Moses died and was buried. I took my tour group, Patty and I, <clears throat> this past September to North Jordan to Mount Nebo. And it was right there at Mount Nebo, Deuteronomy 34, verses 45 through 50, Moses views the promised land from Mount Nebo. And we were standing right in the very area, Brother Tom, somewhere in that area where Moses was viewing the promised land just as we were doing. And he, was, he died and was buried right there at Mount Nebo. Now, some would say Moses and Elijah because of the transfiguration in Matthew chapter number 17. Well, people say, well, Moses never entered into the promised land. Actually, he did. The transfiguration. And do you know where the transfiguration took place? Uh, nope. It took place on Israel's highest mountain in the Golan Heights. Where Dr. Todd Baker and I share the gospel with IDF, Israeli Defense Force soldiers. Mount Hermon. 
is where the transfiguration took place in the Golan Heights in Israel's north border. At the foot of Mount Hermon is Caesarea Philippi. Well, that takes you back to Matthew 16, right? That's where Peter confesses Jesus Christ to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then when you get to Matthew chapter 17, it says Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John to a high mountain. They call that mountain the Eyes of Israel. Some 9,222 feet high. So people say Moses and Elijah because they both appeared on a Mount Hermon on the Transfiguration. But again, Moses died, and the Bible says he was buried. Elijah never died, right? 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse number 11 is clear that he never died. So we know that these two witnesses are preaching during the first half of the tribulation period. And no doubt multitudes, right, are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus as their Savior. So the, the Antichrist has to shut them up because too many people are getting saved now in the tribulation period. And the Antichrist kills these two witnesses. By the way, who do I think the second witness might be? All the early church fathers were in harmony on this. They believed that second, and we can't prove it from Scripture, but they believed that the second witness would be Enoch. You know why? Oh, okay, yeah. And, 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 you know, and it's nothing to break fellowship over, right? It's nothing to break fellowship over. Uh, but I do believe it would be Enoch. Why? Enoch never died. That takes you back to Genesis 5.24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He never died. And it was Enoch who also prophesied of Jesus' second coming back to this earth. That takes you to Jude, verses 14 and 15. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them and the writer of hebrews chapter 11 verse number five talks about enoch's translation enoch was translated that he should not see death so it just makes sense to me elijah a jew enoch a Gentile, he wasn't a Jew, a Gentile. These two are going to be preaching it during the first half of the tribulation period. Multitudes are going to get saved. Antichrist says, somebody shut them up. And he shuts them up. <laughs> look, look in Revelation chapter 11 and verse number 7. Look at this. Revelation eleven seven. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast, well, he's the beast of Revelation 13, 1, that ascended out of the bottomless pit, shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies... Now, I'm going to show you something here in verse 8. Don't miss it. Remember what I told you? You never allegorize a scripture unless the Bible tells you to do so. Well, now the Bible is going to tell you to do so right here in verse 8. Look at this. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually... See what the Bible just did? Spiritually. It's called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Check it out. The Bible spiritualized the literal city of Jerusalem, calling it what? Sodom. And why, why would the Bible spiritually call the literal city of Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt? Why? Here's my take on it. I'm giving you my sanctified speculation here, okay? 
It's spiritualizing the literal city of Jerusalem, calling it Sodom, because during this period, under the Antichrist, the whole entire world is like Sodom and Gomorrah, only personified a hundred times more, man. Absolutely wicked. I mean, I'm talking unprecedented here. Then the Bible calls it Egypt. Why? The whole world will be in bondage to this beast that killed these two witnesses. And you want to know what really bothers me? How the world responds after the Antichrist kills these two witnesses. Look at verse 9. And they of the people and the kindred and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. Antichrist wants to make an example out of them. You double-cross me, same thing's going to happen to you. Don't bother burying them. I want the whole entire world to see them. You know, C.I. Schofield in his 1901 notes said this. One day, the whole entire world will see the bodies of these two dead witnesses. Know what he was called? A heretic. <laughs> That's impossible. How can the world see two dead people all over the globe? They called him a heretic in 1901. But if these same people were alive today, would they be calling him a heretic? Satellites, TV, oh yeah, he was right. He also said in 1901 in his notes on Ezekiel 38 that one day Russia will invade Israel. And at that time, Russia was quote unquote a Christian nation. Look in verse 10, look what the world's doing. Oh my. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall, send, and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. Verse 11, they weren't expecting this. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet. And great fear fell upon, all, fell upon them which saw them. Three and a half days later, they got up from the dead man. It's like they were brushing themselves off. Have you ever wondered why the Bible says three and a half days later they rose from the dead? Isn't that kind of specific? Three and a half. Why would the Bible say three and a half days later they rose from the dead? Because only one person three days later rose from the dead, and nobody's going to duplicate that. Nobody. That's why the Bible says three and a half days later. These two witnesses get up from the dead. And then in verse number 12, and they heard a great voice from heaven saying, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Absolutely incredible what we're reading here in verse number 11. These two witnesses, it takes you back to Zechariah chapter 4, 2 through 6. I don't believe it's Zerubbabel and Joshua here in Revelation chapter number 11, but just as Joshua and Zerubbabel was a light to Israel back then, these two witnesses will be a light to the world in the future seven-year period of tribulation. So we know the two witnesses in the tribulation, and you're looking at the southern steps of the Temple Mount there in uh, Jerusalem. Somewhere up over here, this event might take place. It's going to be somewhere on the Temple Mount. And we know Elijah will be one of them, Malachi chapter 4, 
verses 5 and 6, and we know based on 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse number 11, he went up into heaven in a fiery chariot. He never saw physical death in his lifetime. So we know based on Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Elijah will be one of them. Enoch, we know, would probably most likely be the second one. Again, looking at Genesis 5, 24, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. One a Jew, one a Gentile, never experienced physical death in his lifetime. And it just makes sense to me, ladies and gentlemen. These two are going to come on the scene in the future during the first half of the tribulation period, preaching the gospel. Let me tell you something. Yeah, the gospel is going to be preached in the tribulation period. I get people that tell me all the time, well, if the church ain't going to be here, August, who's going to be preaching the gospel, huh? Who's going to be preaching the gospel? Hey, God knows what he's doing. I might not know what I'm doing. He, you might not know what you're doing, but God knows what he is doing, amen? Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has occurred to God? <laughs> nothing catches God, a God by surprise, amen? These two witnesses are going to be preaching during the first half of the tribulation period. And because of their preaching, 144,000 Jews, 12,000 each, from the 12 tribes of Israel in Revelation chapter 7, they're going to be sealed by God for the purpose of preaching the gospel. All of that is during the first half of the tribulation period, the first 1,260 days. Then, with the great tribulation period, the last 1,260 days, Revelation 14.6 tells us God will dispatch an angel. He's going to circumnavigate the globe, preaching the everlasting gospel to them who dwell on the earth, to every kindred, tongue, and nation. Multitudes upon multitudes upon multitudes are going to be saved. These two witnesses will be for Israel in the future what Zerubbabel and Joshua were for Israel in the past. They will be a light to Jews and Gentiles during the tribulation period. And Revelation chapter 11 brings all that out. When you get to the very tail end of the tribulation period, the end of the seven years, Jesus Christ is going to do something dramatic. You know what he's going to do? And people say, you know, August, you're bordering treason here. Call it what you want. I'm just telling you what the word of God says. There is a coming government, a divine theocratic government, that will one day overthrow the governments of this world. Whether they like it or not. Including this government. There it is. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and forever. Think about this with me for a moment. Between Genesis chapters 1 and 2, there was a theocracy. God ruled over his creation, right? His creation embraced his rule. But when man fell into sin in Genesis chapter 3, that theocracy was set aside. Now we are under a satanocracy. That's Genesis chapter 3 going all the way to Revelation chapter 19. Why do I say a satanocracy? Because Satan is the god of this world. Small g. Right? 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's the prince and the power of the air. Ephesians 2.2. 2. He can transform into an angel of light. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 
14. So right now we are under a Satanocracy. But when Jesus Christ returns at his second coming, that Satanocracy will go back to a theocracy. Here it is. That's Revelation 19 all the way to Revelation chapter number 22. So we had theocracy in the present, Satanocracy, and in the future back to a theocracy. Jesus Christ will overthrow the governments of this world. How do I know that? Isaiah uh, tells us, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called, and I love the Hebrew, Paleo, Et, Wonderful, Counselor, El, Gibor, the Mighty God, Aviad, the Everlasting Father, Sar Shalom. The Prince of Peace. But verse 7 tells us, Of the increase of his government in peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom shall he order it and establish it with justice and judgment from henceforth, even forever and ever the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform this. What am I telling you? God has promises to keep. He will keep his promises in, in the Abrahamic covenant. He will keep his promises in the Davidic covenant. He will keep his promises with the new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. The Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, 16. The new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 and forward. God will keep his promises not only to the church, he will keep his promises to Israel. And when he returns at his second coming, he will overthrow the governments of this world. And then there will be a 1,000-year millennial kingdom reign. And at that time, the whole world will be in harmony under the rule of Jesus Christ. You know something? Even the animal world will be in harmony. Right now, because we're not in the kingdom, obviously, right? The animal world is carnivorous. Meat eaters. Tearing up that meat. I know you've watched Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. With, what was his name, Perkins? Is that his Marlon name? Perkins. Marlon Perkins. Thank you, brother. I used to love watching every Sunday, man, watching the prey sneaking up on, you know, the, the hunters sneak up on our prey, and once he got on that prey, he just pounced on him. That's not going to happen in the kingdom. You know why? Isaiah chapter 11, 6 through 9, tells us this. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear will feed. The young ones will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. You've got to watch out with Dominion Now Theology that teaches we're in the kingdom right now. We're not. Try feeding straw to a lion right now. You'd be like, get that out of here. Give me meat. Or try putting a wolf and a lamb in a cage together. What do you think the outcome will be? Lamb chops, exactly. In the kingdom, they won't be carnivorous anymore. You know what they'll be? Herbivorous. The lion will eat straw like the ox. And yet, you'll have little kids playing with venomous snakes. If, try playing with a venomous snake right now. You won't live to tell about it. it. tells us this. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp. That's a venomous snake. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the cockatrice. You know what a cockatrice is? That's a stinking cobra in the Bible, man. He's going to rip a cobra out of the ground. And he'll be petting that cobra like a kitten. And that thing's going to... Why? 
They will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He will establish his kingdom for a literal, physical, bodily 1,000 years. When I think of those two anointed ones out of Zechariah chapter 4, it reminds me of these future two anointed ones that are yet to come. Elijah, Enoch, one a Jew, one a Gentile, that will prophesy during the first half of the tribulation period. And then that angel, the last half of the tribulation period, preaching the everlasting gospel to the world. Well, Brother August, where are we going to be? Up there. <laughs> You're going to have your hands full. What are you talking about? You and I have a face-to-face -face interview with the king of the Jews. You know what we call that? The bima, the judgment seat of Christ, where God is going to straighten all of us out. Oh, I'm saved, August. Why do I have to be judged? Because God said so. But it has nothing to do with your sin. That was judged at the cross, right? The moment you called upon the name of the Lord and got saved, your sin was judged right there by the blood of Jesus Christ. What's the purpose of the Bema? To determine reward. <clears throat> Brother Tom, you might get one crown, two crowns, three, four, maybe all five. Some of you might get three. Others, two. One, I'm hoping to get maybe the shaving of a diamond. I don't know. But what we do for the Lord now determines our rewards in heaven. You'll have Christians that will get absolutely nothing. You know why? They did nothing. They never went out evangelizing or sharing the gospel with people. So you'll have Christians that will get rewards and other Christians that will get absolutely nothing. But whatever we do now in the present, make sure your motives are correct. Don't serve the Lord with impure motives. For I pleasing, men pleasing, you get nothing. How does uh, Paul the Apostle describe it? Uh, impure motives, they're nothing more than what? Wood, hay, and stubble. You put wood, hay, and stubble, those are all combustible, man. They go up like that. But if your motives are proper, you know what else Paul calls them? Gold. <laughs> silver, precious stone that when you put them in the fire, what does it do? It just keeps purifying it, man. And keeps purifying it. You always make sure your motives are correct. In serving the Lord, your motives are proper. And then at the end of that millennial kingdom, eternity will begin for you and I in a new heaven, a new earth, that new Jerusalem coming down, and you and I are going to reign forever and forever and forever and forever with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All of our saved loved ones will be there. It will be a time of paradise restored. What a day, glorious day, that is going to be. What does that remind me of? What's coming up next? The rapture 
of the church. That great rapture passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 52, Paul said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And you know he's using sleep as a metaphor for death. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment in the what? Twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Think about that. At the time of the rapture, we're going to be changed from mortal to immortal. Perishable to imperishable. Corruptible to incorruptible. We will receive a glorified body. Whether dead or alive, we will receive a glorified body at the time of the rapture. You're not going to use that cane anymore. You ain't going to have to take that medication anymore. Don't stop taking it now. But in an eternal state, you won't need it anymore. We're going to have a glorified body that will be just like the body of Jesus Christ himself. How do I know that? Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our conversation is in heaven, from which we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile bodies, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. And faster than you can blink the human eye, bye-bye. We're out. We're gone, Eric. He's going to take us to the Father's house. And when he takes us to heaven at the rapture, help me out here. We will be in heaven for... <laughs> Man, I played that with the church this morning in uh, Chesterfield, New Hampshire, and... I just kept on, I kept catching everybody, you know, and was, forever, forever. Oh, no, no. Just a brief seven years in heaven. While the earth below goes through a what? Seven year period of tribulation. Called the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. The next main event, folks, we call the rapture of the church. I leave you with one more passage. That great rapture passage. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And what does Paul tell us? Don't be ignorant concerning this event we call the rapture. And I get people that tell me all the time, well, I, never, I don't find the word rapture in the Bible. Why do we have to talk about the rapture? It's not in the Bible. Did you just say Bible? Yeah, I said Bible. Well, I can't find the word Bible in the Bible either. <laughs> but you just said Bible. You believe in demons? Of course I do. I don't find the word demon in the Bible, do you? Demons are not there in the Bible, but we do believe in demons, right? Or the, in the King James, they're called what? Devils, exactly. Devils. You know, if you ever get mad at your kids, oh, you little devils. Are... Devil, they're called little devils. They're demons, that's what they are. I believe in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God, the... but I don't find the word Trinity in the Bible. But the concept, the doctrine is there. Why do we use the word rapture? It comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of the scriptures. Raptoro, caught up, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Raptoro, to seize, to snatch away. Or the Greek would be harpazo, where we get the English word harpoon. Uh, Pat and I watched an old Moby Dick uh, movie with Gregory Peck, shot in New Bedford, where I was born, New Bedford, Mass. 
And uh, they kept on mentioning New Bedford, New Bedford, New Bedford, New Bedford. Maybe feel sort of proud in a way, you know, being from New Bedford. But, man, I saw them with that big uh, uh, harpoon there. And that whale got up, man. It just kept on harpooning that thing. And then what do they do? Reel that whale in. One day the church will be harpooned and reeled up into heaven. Seas snatched away. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. For I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so also them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with them. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. They got six feet further to go, but they rise first. And then we which are alive and remain caught up. Harpazo, rapturo, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And that's why Jesus said, let not your heart be Trouble, John chapter 14, verse 1. Another rapture passage. That great mystery, the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 52. Right here, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. You cannot put a date on that event, and there are no signs that precede it. So that means we need to keep our ears on. Listening for the sound of a shofar. Listening for the sound of a trumpet. At that church this morning, I noticed it was a trumpet, an actual trumpet on my on my side here and i noticed it was a kid a young kid must have been how old patty 12 maybe younger and um so i said where's the young boy that played this trumpet this morning and he was sort of like hiding himself a little bit you know and uh, so his mother said he's right here i'm like come on up here man he's got this big smile on his face he's coming up uh this morning i said get your trumpet he grabs his trumpet i grab my shofar I said, on the count of three, you blow your trumpet, and I blow my shofar. Ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. And him and I blew so hard, I thought I was getting raptured, man. It sounded absolutely beautiful. I mean, it was a, I mean there was one lady. I saw tears coming out of her eyes. It was, it was absolutely incredible. But can you imagine when the real deal sounds? That shofar, that trumpet from heaven, to take the church, to seize, snatch the church out of this world before that final seven-year period of tribulation to come. out of here and we will be in heaven with him for those brief seven years and then after those seven years are up after the bema seat after the marriage and the marriage supper of the lamb we're getting on horses man there are animals in heaven i know there are white horses there we get on those white horses 
we are coming back with him right here. City of Jerusalem, the millennial kingdom for 1,000 years. Woof! Doesn't get any better than that. Amen? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you need to talk with one of us tonight. Ladies, you can talk with one of the other ladies in the church. Men, you can talk with Brother Tom and myself. But do not walk out of here if you do not have that assurance of going to heaven when you die. Let us show you from the Bible how you can know for sure without a shadow of a doubt. If you don't get right, you're going to get left. Don't get left behind. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. Oh, Lord, when I look at all these parallel passages, I look at Zechariah chapter 4, 2 through 4, and verse 14, and I, I see, dear Lord, these two anointed ones, these two olive trees, these two candlesticks, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and they're leading the way in rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the house of the Lord. And then we see in the future, dear Lord, another two olive trees, two candlesticks. This time, Elijah and possibly Enoch preaching, being a light to the world during the first half of the tribulation period. And then we see during the last half, dear Lord, the gospel being preached globally, worldwide by that angel preaching the everlasting gospel. And then the second coming of Jesus back to this earth where he will one day overthrow the governments of this world and he will establish his kingdom from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. And Lord, it doesn't get any better than that. Being a born-again, saved, blood-washed child of God, we are on the winning side. Our salvation is sealed unto the day of redemption. But Lord, what about those all around us that are unregenerate, lost, undone, one trumpet sound away from being left behind at the rapture. One heartbeat away from going to hell, a Christless eternity. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we can be that light to those all around us. Share the gospel with them to bring them to faith in the Lord Jesus before it's too late. So, Father, take this invitation now. And if you're speaking to your people here, Lord, and they feel the need to come forward, I pray that they would do that, Lord. And if there is someone here, and they do not have the assurance of going to heaven when they die, I pray that they would settle that before they leave this building tonight. If you're Pastor Tony, Lord, continue to strengthen him, heal him, give him grace, dear Lord. Be with him and Dawn right now and all the family, Lord. Anybody over there affected by this, this illness, just strengthen them. You are Jehovah Rapha, the God that healeth thee. Exodus 15, 26 tells us. And so, Father, take this invitation and use it for your glory now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.